Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. As the sound of the playgrounds faded, the despair set in. Very odd what happens in a world without children's voices. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 92, Children of Men. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. A very warm welcome to you all, I hope that you're keeping safe and well. Welcome back, obviously, for all returning listeners and if you are a brand new listener, then a very special welcome to you. I hope that you'll not only enjoy this episode... But also, have a look back at some of the other 91 episodes that you still have yet to listen to. There is a lot going on here at Verbal Diorama. There are episodes coming out every week. There is a 100th episode special on the horizon. I'm working on a brand new sister podcast focused on animation called Rotoscoperama. Plus, brand new exclusive episodes are on the way just for patrons. And the first episode for patrons will be WandaVision. I just quickly want to say as well, I got some wonderful feedback for the episode that I did on Hook. One person specifically called it a masterpiece, which was very touching and very kind. Uh, That was Sean from Sean Geek Podcast. Thank you very much. Speaking of masterpieces, we kind of segue quite nicely onto the remarkably prescient children of men. Alfonso Cuaron... I would argue, doesn't make bad movies. But I'd argue as well that this is his masterpiece. And before I start, if you haven't seen Children of Men, but you've chosen to listen anyway, you will not know that this movie deals with worldwide infertility. And so I thought it would be good to just let you know uh, a trigger warning for anyone who's currently dealing with infertility. And while I'm not going to really dwell on that, it is a huge part of the plot. And so it's kind of unavoidable to talk about. But if you're happy to continue, then let's have a listen to the trailer for Children of Men. I can't really remember when I last had any hope. And I certainly can't remember when anyone else did either. Because really, since women stopped being able to have babies, what's left to hope for? 
The world was stunned today by the death of Diego Ricardo, the youngest person on the planet. The youngest person on Earth was 18 years, 4 months, 20 days, 16 hours and 8 minutes old. The ultimate mystery, why are women infertile? Some say it's genetic experiments, pollution. Why do you think we can't make babies anymore? Doesn't matter. It's all over in 50 years. It's too late. Move along! Move along! Hello, Theo. Have you been? I'm sorry about the theatrics. Police have been a pain lately. I haven't seen you for nearly 20 years. Need your help. Not for me, a girl. Need to get her to the coast, past security checkpoints. It's hard for me to look at you. He had your eyes. So why did you come to me? I trust you. Show him. Now you know what's at stake. We have to meet the boat. What is this boat? The Human Project have sent a boat. The Human Project? Yes, the greatest minds in the world working for a new society. Your baby is the miracle the whole world has been waiting for. We will find a way to get you to the Human Project, I promise you. We're almost there, Keith. We're almost there. Set in 2027, when no child has been born for 18 years and human fertility is deemed extinct, African and Eastern European societies collapse and their dwindling populations migrate to England and other wealthy nations. In a climate of nationalistic violence, a London peace activist turned bureaucrat, Theo Farron, joins forces with his revolutionary ex-wife Julian in order to save mankind by protecting a young refugee woman who has miraculously become pregnant. We'll quickly run through the cast. We have Clive Owen as Theo Farron, Julianne Moore as Julian Taylor, Claire Hope Ashite as Key, Michael Caine as Jasper Palmer, Chiwetel Ejiofor as Luke, Charlie Hunnam as Patrick, Pam Ferris as Miriam, Peter Mullen as Sid, and a, well, elongated cameo, really, from Danny Houston as Nigel. The screenplay for Children of Men was by Alfonso Cuaron, Timothy J. Sexton, David Arata, Mark Fergus, and Hawk Ostby. It was based on The Children of Men by P.D. James, and it was directed by Alfonso Cuaron. And like all good dystopian fiction, we have to start with the book, which is rather ironically set in 2021, and not 2027 as the movie. That was quite nice to talk about Children of Men in 2021, but that was completely coincidental. So details differ between the book and the film. It's very loosely based on the original book, and I will go into those differences in a bit, but English author Phyllis James, known as P.D. James, wrote The Children of Men, which was published in 1992. She was mostly known for her detective novels, uh, the Adam Dalgleish and Cordelia Gray series of novels, but she also wrote Death Comes to Pemberley, 
which was a Pride and Prejudice-based murder mystery set six years after the marriage of Mr Darcy and Elizabeth Bennet, told from Mr Darcy's point of view. P.D. James became a life peer as Baroness James of Holland Park before passing away aged 94 in 2014. P.D. James herself actually appears in this movie. She is in the cafeteria at the start of the movie holding a dog. So the novel, The Children of Men, centred on humanity's mass infertility, which inexplicably starts in 1995 after, in 1994, male sperm counts plummet to zero. The title, The Children of Men, comes from Psalm 90. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, forever thou hadst formed the earth and the world. Even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction, and sayest, Return ye, children of men, for a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Which, not to the religious themes of both the novel and the movie. This infertility epidemic leads to a feminist civil war, and as the years progress with no children being born, those final children born are heralded as essentially royalty, and given special privileges. The overarching themes of humanity losing hope and the downfall of democracy as the world burns and the apathetic pessimistic society mostly either falls apart or turns to religion to provide answers. P.D. James wrote it after thinking, if there was no future, how would we behave? It's a really interesting question, actually. She also wrote The Children of Men at the age of 72. So really, what I'm trying to say is there is no age limit barrier to your goals. If you have an idea, especially for a story, then you've got no excuse. Get it out there. If she can do this at age 72, then you can certainly do whatever you're thinking you might want to do. So let's go through a quick rundown of the changes made from novel to movie. There are quite a lot, so I'm not going to go into them in any real detail, but so the changes include, so the infertility changes from a male issue to a female issue. So in the movie, it is women that are the cause of the problem. And believe me when I say, I'm going to talk about this later. Julian, she is not Theo's ex-wife in the novel. She becomes the first pregnant woman in 20 years. Uh, The character of Zan Lipiat who is Theo's cousin, who becomes the dictatorial leader of England, is completely removed from the movie and is replaced for one scene with the character of Nigel, who instead is a high-ranking government official. Theo is an Oxford Don and historian in the book and a bureaucrat and alcoholic in the movie. He also accidentally kills his child, who is a daughter in the book, and in the movie his son dies of a flu pandemic. He's also Zan's official advisor in the book. The character of Key does not appear at all in the book, as I said. The character of Julian is pregnant in the book. And Luke doesn't kill Julian for his own leadership gains in the book, but that's because she's pregnant. Luke is completely loyal and he dies protecting her. The Omegas, who are the youngest people in the world, They basically run riot because of their immense privilege and status and they tend to have sociopathic and violent tendencies. The movie alludes to Nigel's son possibly being an Omega, but it doesn't actually kind of go into that. 
Dogs and cats are doted upon in the book. They basically become a surrogate for a newborn baby. They have christening ceremonies for puppies and kittens, and they dress dogs and cats in expensive clothing. The movie does feature animals prominently throughout, and dogs are actually seen in every single scene, kind of as a nod to this obsession in the book with animals. And finally, healthy women under 45 must be gynecologically examined examined twice a year and men must have their sperm tested in the book but obviously the movie does not go into that however we do see several ads which state that not going for fertility testing is a crime considering the movie contains acts of terrorism as well as a police state and a brutal regime against immigration and migrants it's rather unsurprising that Alfonso Cuaron became interested in making a film adaptation of The Children of Men after the events of 9-11. So when the attacks occurred in New York, he was at the Toronto Film Festival and he became stuck there because air travel was suspended. After being stranded for three or four days, he realised that one cataclysmic event had basically delved the world into chaos. And he was interested in the idea of infertility and humanity's fading sense of hope and how that could be explored in a state of post 9-11 life. He'd not read the P.D. James novel, but a script by Paul Chart had been rewritten by Mark Fergus and Hawk Ostby. And he read that and it piqued his interest. After he completed Itumama Tambian, he began rewriting the script alongside Timothy J. Sexton. Whether he read the original novel, The Children of Men, it's in, in its entirety or not, I'm actually uncertain because some sources online say that he did and some say that he didn't. So I'm not going to say either and just kind of say what is very clear that he put his own mark on this movie. Obviously, at this point, he chose not to continue with Children of Men as his next project as he was starting work on Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. That's a movie that's often cited as one of the best of the Harry Potter movies for its darker tone, larger scope and more grounded realism. It was his work on Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban which gave him the insight into the British psyche and the social dynamics of post 9-11 Britain. While he was working on Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, David Arata did script work on the project but basically, producers were still unsure whether Alfonso Cuaron would return to the smaller budget Children of Men over having the chance to helm another big budget Harry Potter blockbuster. Because at the time, it was highly likely that he would stick with Harry Potter. But he didn't, obviously. He decided to go back to Children of Men. And this is where Clive Owen gets involved because he got involved with the project in the very early stages. And while five screenwriters are credited, it's important to know Alfonso Cuaron only actually credits himself, Timothy J. Sexton, and also Clive Owen. Owen did multiple uncredited rewrites and was heavily invested in the character of Theo, about how Theo would instinctively react in a situation. And the three worked together in a hotel room in New York for a couple of weeks, purely to focus on this central character of Theo. Julianne Moore obviously also got involved as well. She was originally going to play the role of Key, and the reasons that she didn't will become apparent in a short while. But she was then cast as Julian, who became Theo's ex-wife, and a freedom fighter, the o and also the only American main actor in the cast. Michael Caine was playing completely against type as a hippie cannabis dealer, the character of Jasper, and Jasper was based on the mannerisms and speaking style of Kane's old friend John Lennon. Yep, that John Lennon. 
Claire Hope Ashite was cast as key for a, for a key reason. Excuse the pun, but technically key is the key to humanity's survival. Alfonso Cuaron wanted Key to be a black African woman to symbolise the fact that human life started on the African continent. And so this movie would symbolise the fact that human life is yet again starting with Africa. And this kind of goes back to the reason why, as the script progressed, it was very obvious that Julianne Moore could not play the part of a pregnant woman. Most movies tell, most movies tell us how the world came to be by using expository intros, voiceovers or such like. Children of Men doesn't tell us, it shows us. Uh, Alfonso Cuaron, as a filmmaker, dislikes heavy exposition, instead choosing to ground Children of Men in an immediately dark, grey, mute-coloured, smoggy future London, with all the technology that you might expect, like animated billboards, but it also feels very contemporary. In this initial opening scene, the summary of humanity's despair in the death of baby Diego, who was the youngest person on earth, he was aged 18, and it's summarised so beautifully in one of many long takes, with shoulder-mounted cameras following Theo as he struggles through a crowded coffee shop filled with mourning citizens, buys a coffee, walks onto the street, the camera follows him as, as he does this, before a huge explosion rocks the street. Now, this explosion was filmed a month and a half after the 7th of July 2007 London bombings, Despite this, most of the movie was shot on location in London. And I'm going to be talking about some of the shooting locations in a little bit. One thing that strikes me about this movie is that Alfonso Cuaron is such a great choice to direct it because he trusts his audience implicitly to put the pieces together. We show news clips, we can see newspaper cuttings, and from that, we can gather what this, what the dystopian version of this world is like. We get billboard ads that are prominent for things like Quietus, for fertility testing, as I said, for reporting illegal immigrants. We find out that major cities have fallen to terrorist attacks and disease and a global depression, and that only the UK remains functional. However, is basically subject to thousands and thousands of refugees attempting to cross the border into the country. Illegal immigrants are arrested, imprisoned and executed. The Holocaust imagery in this movie is also not coincidental because, you know, if you're British and you have papers and identity cards, then you're fine. If you're from anywhere else, you are not wanted in this version of Britain. It's simultaneously like contemporary and futuristic mundane and alarming. It's not a future determined by flying cars or neon skylines. Alfonso Cuaron actually called this the anti-Blade Runner when he was describing it, but it's also quite clever and it realises that the near future from 2006 to 2027 probably isn't going to change all that much. The city of London is not going to change all that much in that time. And this reliance on storytelling instead of futuristic visuals is another reason why Children of Men feels similarly so prescient and also so timeless. This is a movie that's 15 years old this year and it feels like this was a movie that could have been made last year. In fact, <laughs> it could have easily been made last year because there's a lot of talk about flu pandemics in this movie and so the whole COVID-19 thing, this could very easily have been made last year. Children of Men chooses locations like train stations littered with refugee cages, dishevelled tower blocks and abandoned schools to set the story in. 
and builds a world that's both instantly recognisable and kind of scarily relentless. Everything is and feels intentional in this movie. Even everything in the background. If you watch this movie on silent and just watch the background, there is so much going on in the background to add to the plot and the story that never needs to be explained. You never need to go into that in any detail. But the world that this movie builds is so detailed and intricate. So the locations that they shot at in London include Fleet Street, Trafalgar Square and Battersea Power Station, obviously as well as shooting out in the countryside as well. Alfonso Cuaron intentionally wanted London to look more like Mexico and basically it was about depicting a city in hopeless poverty and desperation. And I really do think that comes across. One of the main things most people remember about Children of Men, apart from the, spoiler alert, deaths of Julianne Moore's character Julian, she dies less than 30 minutes into the movie and it's quite graphic and horrific the way that she dies, followed by another brutal assassination of another popular character, Michael Caine's Jasper, both of which are orchestrated by Chiwetel Ejiofor's Luke. Are it's one-take shots. There is a car journey which means Safari Blockade and Molotov Cocktails lasting 4 minutes 7 seconds. There is a childbirth scene lasting 3 minutes 19 seconds and Theo desperately chasing the fishes to find Key and her child across a battle zone into a tower block lasting 6 minutes and 18 seconds. To achieve these mammoth feats, Alfonso Cuaron leaned on his friend Emmanuel Lubezki as director of photography. Lubezki refused a total CGI imagery for the roadside ambush. Instead, they created a special camera rig. They mounted it on a car shell driven by a stunt driver. The roof of the car was open to a compartment above for Cuaron, Lubezki and a camera operator. And he basically controlled a camera rig invented by Gary Thielgez of Doggy Can Systems. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. The camera could pan 360 degrees inside the car. It could move forwards and backwards as all five actors inside the car reacted to the stunt work going on outside the car. It wasn't one complete shot, but a composite of five seamless digital transitions and was filmed over one week. But it's one of the most stunning shots in the entire movie. And it's very similar to a shot used in Atomic Blonde, which is episode 69 of this podcast, by the way. Uh, CGI imagery was used for certain elements, like the motorbike crashing onto the car. But overall, that is a real shot with real reactions. And it's completely breathtaking. It's one of the greatest shots I've ever seen in my life. It's absolutely stunning. The battle zone scene where Theo desperately makes his way, unarmed as well, by the way. Theo does not use a gun in this movie at all. So he basically goes through a war zone, gunfire into a block of flats. That took 14 days to prepare and five separate takes in two locations to get done. The blood splattered lens, which I actually thought was intentional because it looks so great. And it really adds to the raw realism of the scene because both sides are firing ridiculous amounts of ammo. So of course the lens is going to get blood on it. It wasn't intentional, basically. When the fake blood landed on the lens, Alfonso Cuaron shouted cut, but he wasn't heard in the commotion of the scene. Because the scene took five hours to reset up and reshoot, Emmanuel Lebetsky convinced Alfonso Cuaron to leave the shot in. Again, breathtakingly brilliant shot, probably one of the most memorable in any movie ever, especially 
when the scene ends. Because the scene ends with Theo escorting Key and her baby out of the building. And it's just this wonderful kind of, excuse the pun, pregnant pause in the movie. Everyone who is fighting and shooting stops. Just from the realisation that there is a newborn baby there. And they hear the baby crying and everyone is just enraptured by the fact that this is a newborn baby. And I think you forget how miraculous that is in this world. If a newborn baby hasn't been born for 18 years and all of a sudden there's one there, people are going to stop and they are going to take note. It doesn't last, obviously, because they carry on fighting again. But it's a remarkable moment in this really, really remarkable film. It makes you realise just how much is at stake if one crying child can stop an entire war. And, you know, no one... And I mean, no one is going to harm that child. Key's birth scene was achieved by shooting two scenes, one with Claire Hope Ashite giving birth, in inverted commas, and the other replacing her legs with prosthetic legs, which birthed an, an animatronic baby, which was replaced in post-production with a CGI baby, complete with steam as well, because you would think, well, if a baby has been in there for eight or nine months, and the room is fairly cold, as you would imagine that room to be, because it doesn't look like there is any central heating in that room, you would expect the baby to come out with some steam. And uh, this CGI baby was created by Framestore CFC. And while I'm sure that many pregnant women could only dream of a three minute, 19 second birth, it still fully depicts the emotional impact uh, of not just the importance of this birth to the world as a whole, but also to key and to Theo, because they really are the central characters in the movie, and the movie relies so heavily on them. I mean, I would argue relies a bit more heavily on Clive Owen, uh, and he is definitely kind of the bigger name in the movie, but this movie would not work without Claire Hopachete. She just gives this really funny, raw, sort of light performance, and I don't mean that to take anything away from her performance, but she brings some really nice humour to the role. It's humour, but it's like an underlying of strength that I really, really like about her. But I really like Key's sense of humour because it really lifts the movie occasionally. But the emotional impact of Key giving birth to the only baby <laughs> that exists in the whole entire world is something that I feel it's given the right amount of emotional weight. I mentioned a bit earlier about religion and religious imagery is it plays a huge part in this movie, uh, from the origin of the name, Children of Men, as I said, to the religious groups crying divine punishment from God, and this is the reason why we can't have children anymore. The British refugee rights group is called the Fishes, all the way to Key and Baby Dylan being heavily compared to Mary and the baby Jesus. So Key reveals her pregnant body to Theo in a barn. She jokes about that she's a virgin and it's a virgin birth. Her baby is literally seen as the Messiah and Key literally being the key to mankind's survival. It's also mentioned that the government would never allow an immigrant woman to be seen as the mother of the first child born in 18 years and that the baby would be immediately given to and raised by a black British woman and essentially paraded around and used for propaganda. And this propaganda will probably consist of how great, in inverted commas, Britain is, because we see loads of propaganda in this movie. The use of 
advertisements and TV spots on how Britain soldiers on. Uh, Baby Dylan is would become the poster child for British fertility, about how great Britain is. Look, we managed to produce a baby. It doesn't happen in the movie, but I can guarantee this is what they would do. And this would all be despite the fact that this is the child of an African immigrant. My one issue with this movie is the change from male infertility in the book to female infertility in the movie. And the reason for the change is unknown. But the reason why I'm kind of a bit irked by it is I feel like women's fertility is always commodified. People simultaneously praise and shame women for their fertility. You know, mothers are damned however they birth or raise their children. This is a fact. Many women are still not in control of their own fertility by being denied access to contraceptives or abortion. I can just imagine the international shame placed on the women in the world of children of men, uh, especially on those women who'd previously had an abortion or miscarried. In this world, the children of men world, women's choices and lifestyles and health would be turned against them. And we can, this is only speculation, of course, because this isn't seen in the movie, but you just know that this would happen because this happens in our world, in a world that doesn't have zero infertility that's the fault of women. So if you can imagine if the fault was placed on women's feet in this world, in the children of men world, just how much crap these women would have to go through. I, I, I just can't even think. I don't understand why that decision was made, genuinely. It feels unnecessarily nasty a little bit against the women in this movie. I don't necessarily think that this is a feminist movie in that regard. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily want the blame to be solely placed on men either. I feel like the best solution in this example would be to have the infertility evenly spread amongst both men and women because Key's pregnancy would be no less of a miracle and additionally, her daughter wouldn't be born into a world that vilifies women. I love this movie, genuinely. I think it's absolutely incredible. But that is kind of my only gripe with it. Why? Why is it women? I can't find any explanation. I've had a look online of why Alfonso Cuaron made that choice or whether another scriptwriter specifically made that choice. But I was quite curious, though. So I wanted to look at real world fertility and birth rates because I was like, well, is this, could this possibly happen? And you know what? They're actually both fertility and birth rates are falling across the world. The worldwide fertility rate in 1964, according to the World Bank, was 5.055 births per woman. In 2018 worldwide, it was down to 2.415 births per woman. So this is a worldwide rate. So the Worldwide birth rate in 1963 was 36.056 births per 1,000 people. In 2018, this was down to 18.175 births per 1,000 people. So obviously, this can be put down to many factors. Increased education for women, equal job opportunities and contraceptive choices. Life expectancy, additionally, has increased dramatically too. So in 1960, life expectancy on average was 52.578 years that's across men and women, it's now 72.563 years. So we are currently a population growing older for longer and making less babies, mostly through choice. You know, many people do choose a child-free life, uh, as is their right to do so. But 
you have to ask, how would society react when that choice is taken from us? For, as the movie says, playgrounds to empty to forget what a child's voice actually sounds like. For the cries of Key's baby to stop a war zone dead in its tracks just by the sound of a baby crying. While society in real life is more attuned to the issue of overpopulation, I think, than lack of fertility, you know, you can't say that the evidence isn't there to suggest that there is a downward trend in fertility and birth rates for whatever reason. I'm not necessarily saying that we have to start ringing the alarm bells here. And it's not necessarily a bad thing in reality that birth rates are falling because we are getting to the point where we are an overpopulated world. We only have finite resources. But yeah, I just thought it was an interesting thing to, uh, to have a look into. In the face of overwhelming despair, hope and faith, win through in the end. The birth of a baby heralds new possibilities for this version of Earth. While we know little about the Humane Project, we like to think that we know enough to know that Key and Dylan will be safer with them than in the dystopian UK. But the truth is, we know nothing. As I said, this is not a movie that tells us stuff. This is a movie that shows us things. We don't know if Theo lives but we presume he doesn't. And the ending is purposely ambiguous. Is purposely ambiguous. And to be honest, in a movie with no exposition, it makes sense to just not know what is going to happen to these characters. But you'd like to think that Key and Dylan have gone on the ship and they are both having the best possible life that they can, especially in this situation. But we just don't know. And I guess that's kind of the moral of the story, really. We just don't know what's going to happen. But there are a lot of things that happen in this movie that have happened recently. Things like, I remember one of the messages from the pro-Brexit lobbying was close our borders to immigrants. And obviously, the pro-Brexit movement won the recent referendum. I don't think the UK has reached the point of putting migrants in cages, but... I mean, again, who knows? Obviously, the biggest point of comparison uh, for this movie is probably the 2020 coronavirus pandemic, which literally caused schools to close and playgrounds to quieten. This school run became non-existent, as did the typical nine-to-five office job. Streets emptied, shops were full of sullen masked shoppers. While we didn't close our borders completely here in the UK, less planes came into the airports. Um, and the death toll worldwide remains a staggeringly bleak and sobering look at how quickly our economies can fall. Children of Men obviously has its own flu pandemic in 2008. This is the flu pandemic that kills Theo and Julian's son. And this is surprisingly close in date as well to the 2009 H1N1 flu pandemic. Oh really, basically, this movie in its entirety is all very, very similar in many ways to V for Vendetta, except it's based on a novel instead of a graphic novel. Uh, v for Vendetta came out the previous year. If you've not seen V for Vendetta or indeed listened to episode 67 of this podcast, I would very much recommend both because if you enjoy Children of Men, I think you would also get a lot out of V for Vendetta. They are incredibly similar. I will be recommending V for Vendetta at the end of this episode as well. Let's move on to something a little bit lighter than <laughs> talking about dystopian futures and stuff like that. So let's move on to the obligatory Keanu reference. So this is a part of the podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And Keanu Reeves believes that children are our future, quite genuinely. 
because he secretly funds a couple of children's hospitals and cancer research through a private foundation. He's never publicly revealed the name of this foundation, nor the institutions that it helps, but this is why the man deserves his own obligatory Keanu reference, because he's so selfless and so giving. So I use this little feature to give back to him, because he deserves it. This is nothing to do with children of men, of course, but it is to do with the future of humanity, so that's good enough for me. So the use of sound and music in Children of Men is used to really highlight the social unrest and unpredictability of the situation, especially the sound of tinnitus after a death, which proves Julian's point from the start of the movie when she says that that's the last time you will ever hear that frequency, because she's actually talking about the sound of that deceased person's voice. And then you realise that if someone dies, you're never going to hear their voice again. And it makes you really, really sad. The use of Deep Purple's song Hush, which <laughs> I genuinely thought was a Cooler Shaker original. And that is my lack of music history for you. But anyway, so that is an anthem for the sound of no babies or children. Radiohead's Life in a Glass House plays in Jasper's home. And if you thought that the visual references to the Holocaust weren't enough, as Miriam is marched off the bus. The music that's playing is Arbeit Macfry by the Libertines. Arbeit Macfry meaning work shall set you free. That was written above the entrance at Auschwitz. So, I mean, that is enough to kind of make anything feel incredibly sombre. But when it came to marketing, undoubtedly the studio didn't really know how to promote children of men. Was it a futuristic science fiction? Was it a dystopian drama? Was it a modern retelling of the nativity? And clearly they thought that the third option was the right one because I'm not sure who thought it was a good idea to release Children of Men on Christmas Day in the US in 2006. Maybe they thought the religious Christian imagery was too much of a marketing opportunity to throw away. Uh, we here in the UK got it on the 22nd of September 2006. It debuted at number one at the UK box office. And in the US, well, I mean, that Christmas Day release was only at 16 cinemas. So it opened at number 26 in the US box office. It opened wide on the 5th of January and it added another 1,193 locations. It jumped up to number three. That was behind Night at the Museum and The Pursuit of Happiness. One of the most disappointing things about this movie, and it's nothing to do with the movie itself, as I've said, I do have a slight issue with it, but overall, I think this is an absolutely tremendous movie, one that I would recommend wholeheartedly to anyone and everyone. The most disappointing thing about this movie is how badly it did at the box office, because it did not deserve to be such a box office disappointment. Children of Men was made for $76 million. It would only make $70 million worldwide. Alfonso Cuaron would be so disappointed with the financials and the recognition of children of men that he would take a six-year hiatus from movie making, only returning for the critically and financially acclaimed multiple award-winning Gravity in 2013. Despite the incredibly lacklustre box office, critics loved children of men it was ranked in many critics' top 10 of the best films of 2006. It still sits at 92% on Rotten Tomatoes for critics. But the greatest accolade that Children of Men could ever receive was the ultimate blessing and appreciation from P.D. James herself, who, despite the plot changes, 
was really pleased with the film. And that's kind of, I guess, all you want if you are adapting a piece of work for the originator of that work to actually enjoy and like what you've done. Children of Men would be nominated for three Academy Awards for Best Cinematography, Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Film Editing. It lost those to Pan's Labyrinth, The Departed and The Departed, respectively. It was also nominated for three BAFTAs. It would win Best Cinematography and Best Production Design, but lost out to Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest for Best Special Visual Effects. And... I mean, I'll quickly talk about sequels, but there are none. <laughs> there is no sequel to Children of Men, and nor should there be, because Children of Men is a perfect standalone feature. Undoubtedly, if it had made lots of money at the box office, I'm pretty certain they would have made a sequel, but I'm glad that they didn't, because sometimes you just don't need one. Right, let's move over to social media thoughts. So... This is where I like to get people's opinions on the movie. I start with the patrons and I move on over to the rest of social media, to Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. But we will start with the patrons and we will start with Scott. And he says, Staggering, bleak, yet strangely beautiful film. I was on board with this from the first time I saw the trailer and it didn't disappoint through subsequent viewings. It was amazing to finally see it on the big screen last year too. And 15 years old, it feels even more scarily relevant. And Scott is from the Monkey See Monkey Review podcast. He hosts that with Chris and Kev. They've actually just celebrated their one year podcast anniversary. They're a lovely bunch of guys. I don't think Scott will mind me saying either that he and I actually met up recently for a socially distanced coffee because we don't actually live that far away from each other. Um, and despite the intense caffeine high I got from drinking two very strong coffees, one after the other, we had actually a really good time and he's becoming a really good friend. So make sure you check out Monkey See Monkey Review. And the second comment we have is from Matt and he says, Science fiction often tries to deliver a profound message and Children of Men delivers. It gives us a grim view of the near future yet manages to present the power of hope, the potential that humans can be good. Its messages and the emotions that come from them are beautiful and terrifying at the same time and still resonate to this day. One of the best social science fiction films of the 21st century, if not ever. Thank you very much, Matt, for your comment. Matt is from the podcast From Outer Space. Hasn't put out an episode for a little bit, actually, but from what he has put out, you should definitely check those out. I know Matt's a huge fan of science fiction, loves to analyse how stuff was made, very much a man after my own heart there. Uh, I'll pop some links in the show notes for Monkey See Monkey Review and the podcast From Outer Space. Stop the patron presses because we have had another patron comment it has come a little bit later than all the others, but that's absolutely fine. We'll still include the patron comments in the patron comments. And it is, of course, Andy from Geek Salad. And he says, Children of Men is one of the most beloved, underrated movies of this century. Alfonso Cuaron delivers a well-shot, well-acted dystopian future that leaves us with a glimpse of hope, as well as the sadness of the future society. And... I mean, he may have been late for the patron comments, but most importantly for you listeners, don't be late for a very important date, that makes no sense, with Geek Salad. Get them in your downloads. Give these folk as much love as I give them. Um, because, I mean, Andy from Geek Salad, he's pretty much constantly features on this podcast because he's so good with his comments. He was a little bit late with this one, but that's okay because I know his wife was sick. Absolutely. Links in the show notes for Geek Salad. Make sure you download and listen to those guys. We will move over now to Twitter. 
and we start Twitter with the wonderful Nick Haskins. Now, Nick Haskins is a lovely, lovely man, but <laughs> his comment on Children of Men is not what I would expect. He says, One of the most mad movies I have ever seen. The power that it seems to hold over so many completely passes me by. I find it boring, formulaic, and the performances, especially by Clive Owen, are just woeful. It just isn't good. I'm going to be mentioning Nick a little bit later in this podcast because we're going to be working together uh, on live stream for The Cure, which is a charity live stream. Um, and like I say, he's the most lovely man <laughs> that you'll ever speak to. And luckily for him, I guess, we have a very deep and passionate joint love for the mummy. So, I mean, he'll always have that. But really, Nick? And Avengers Endgame as well. He doesn't like that either. And I'm just like... It's a good job that he cooks delicious food for his podcast, which is Nikolai's Kitchen. Because <laughs> what is with your taste in film, Nick? Anyway, uh, so we move on to another very, very lovely man. This is Sam from Movie Reviews in 20 Qs at Movie Reviews in. Oh, that's uh, at, at Nikolai's Kitchen for Nick skins so at movie reviews in which is sam from movie reviews and 20 q's podcast i have had to censor some of his comments because he's tried to get past the clean language filter of this podcast um and i mean he tried and it it's still not really acceptable so i have changed his words for some better words so he said in a roundabout way i absolutely love this film it's so indescribably good. 12,000 out of 10,000. Which would be a hyperbole sandwich on Movie Reviews and 20 Qs, but I know they haven't covered it yet. And so when they do, let's see if he sticks to his score because, I mean, that is an excellent score for a, a truly excellent movie. We will move on. We will go to Movies After Work, which is at Movies Work. And they said, A technical achievement and a reminder why we should have committed to the starring power of Clive Owen. We have James at Rodders Jo4 who said, I remember blind buying this one from a bargain bin at Blockbuster. Try saying that a hundred times really fast. I remember blind buying this film from a bargain bin at Blockbuster, having heard SFX magazine rave about it. I sat down in my new room to watch it on my little TV and was absolutely blown away by it. Still remains one of my favourite films of all time. At Kids Watching, which is the Kids What Are We Watching Tonight podcast, they say, Everyone told me how good this film was and it didn't appeal to me at all. I watched it last year and was so annoyed I hadn't watched it sooner. The leaving the building scene and the Pam Ferris monologue are so powerful. At Film Floggers, which is a Film Floggers podcast, said, A similar story. I came to it late. I remember puffing out my cheeks when a particular character made an early exit. I would like to give it a crack sometime. Brilliant filmmaking. I look forward to hearing your thoughts, Em. And, well, hopefully you are hearing my thoughts right now. J.D. Gravatt, at J.D. Gravatt, said, The car scene is still one of the most fluidly and impressively shot scenes I have ever seen, and the long takes are also incredible. This was the first movie that really made me consider how things were shot. And I completely understand that. This is a phenomenal-looking movie. At Stale Popcorn, this is the Stale Popcorn podcast, just simply said, Loved it! Which... I mean, summarises the thoughts of this film perfectly, as far as I'm concerned. And finally, we have Jeff at At The Flicks Pod, 
who said, Because there were not many new films last year, we did a review podcast where each reviewer had to pick a film they had always wanted to see but never had. This was my selection and I am so pleased I picked it. I was blown away by its power and strangely its view of a land torn apart by its own people. It is as though in its own way it predicted Brexit. Again, the Olympic t-shirt worn by Owen is a reflection of this. Excellent film and all of this was for our episode 96. And thank you for that DM, Jeff. And thank you for reminding me about the fact that you DM'd me as well. Because <laughs> there is a high probability that I will forget. We don't have any thoughts over on Instagram or Facebook, as is actually becoming quite traditional now. It tends to be Twitter uh, that focuses on the comments. But as always, uh, thank you so much for everyone who provided comments. Children of Men, I think, is phenomenal. And I think the comments really do reflect that. As I mentioned a bit earlier on this podcast, Children of Men is 15 years old this year. And it never feels it. Not once does it feel 15 years old. It's not dated at all. The most remarkable thing about this movie, and there are many remarkable things, is that it places the future of humanity and the hope for all mankind into an immigrant black woman. And the very real danger this puts her and her child in, not just for being... A, a woman, but also B, black, and C, a migrant. It's the very antithesis of what most movies will accept as the hero of the story, in inverted commas. It's a futuristic tale without any futuristic gadgets, going back to how it doesn't feel dated in any way, and I don't expect that it's going to ever feel dated. But this bleak take on the nativity, because let's be honest, it kind of is, is not only sociopolitically prophetic, but also eerily realistic to the way that, as a society, we are becoming complacent. While P.D. James' original novel was about the patriarchal dictatorship and corrupt society, Alfonso Cuaron's film is a commentary on race, immigration and geopolitical warfare. While Baby Dylan is revered as the miracle birth, literally stopping the war for a fleeting moment, it soon starts up again. And that's because we will never truly see the miracles that the world provides. And if we do, then we will continue to ignore them and we will continue to keep on fighting each other because that is the human condition. It's not the, for it's not the first movie to ask existential questions, existential questions about the future of humanity, and it certainly won't be the last, but it feels like it's the most thoughtful. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Children of Men. If you love this episode, you can help Verbal Diorama grow and be noticed by others by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. You can retweet or like posts on social media, or you can just simply tell your friends and family about this podcast. And if you did like this specific episode on Children of Men, you might also like the following episodes. So... I'm going to recommend episode 19, Logan. There are a lot of similarities between Children of Men and Logan. Obviously, Logan kind of veers more towards a comic book movie, but it's a lot more than that. It is a comic book character, but there is a very kind of real, raw, dark, gritty story there about family and about love that really, really tugs on your heartstrings. And so I thought it would be quite a nice little companion episode for this. And the other one that I'd like to recommend is obviously episode 67, V for Vendetta. Because again, it's very similar to this. It's very dystopian. It's very bleak. It's very grim. It's set in the near future. And again, it leans more towards a superhero sort of setting in many ways. But it's also really interesting. And I think it asks a lot of existential questions as well. So, like I say, if you like Children of Men, 
then you will probably like both Logan and V for Vendetta in many different ways. Give me feedback on my recommendations. Obviously, let me know what you think. The next episode is a Twitter request. So I went on Twitter and I put up a poll and I said, what do you want me to cover next? Do you want me to cover Alien, Jaws or Raiders of the Lost Ark? It was very close. Jaws got 26.6%. Alien got 34.4%. But the winner was Raiders of the Lost Ark with 39.1%. So Indiana Jones is finally coming to Verbal Diorama. I'm excited. It's a classic. We're back with Steven Spielberg, last seen, of course, in the recent episode on Hook. Hopefully one day I'm going to get round to Jaws and Alien. But it seems like Twitter prefers Harrison Ford to Creatures. Uh, so Raiders of the Lost Ark will be the first episode in May. And this is the run-up to episode 100 in June, which is very, very exciting. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama. Do you want exclusive episodes? If you do, you can sign up to Patreon from $2 a month. It's patreon.com slash verbal diorama. And you can get perks, including exclusive episodes, like I said at the start of the episode. There is a Division episode coming out for patrons. So a massive thank you to the patrons of Verbal Diorama. They are Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Mike... Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Matt, Trevor, Scott, Mark and Brendan. The future of humanity is bright with these guys as patrons. I do have a merch store. It's teespring.com slash stores slash verbal diorama if you want to buy merch. You can email me if you want, verbaldiorama at gmail.com or you can go to the brand new website, verbaldiorama.com and I write stuff for film stories. So you can go to filmstories.co.uk. You can buy copies of the magazine there. You can click on articles and stuff that I write and other wonderful people write. And yeah, they're there. Check them out. I'm sure you'll find them very enjoyable. And just to let you know if you've reached this point in the episode, thanks for listening all this way, by the way. I'm taking part in a charity live stream on the 22nd of May at 3pm UK time. It's all to raise money for live stream for The Cure. It's a wonderful event. It's in its fifth year. This is the first time that I'm joining in. It's run by Nick Haskins of Nikolai's Kitchen. Please tune in at 3pm on the 22nd of May. That's 22nd of May 2021 to hear me and Nick for the hour. It's going to be a lot of fun. And hopefully we're going to be raising so much money for live stream for The Cure. It's all to find a cure for cancer. So really worthwhile cause. And I will be live streaming on video. So if you want to see my face, tune in. I don't want to put people off. But anyway, <laughs> if you want to join in, please join in and please help us raise loads of money. And finally, okay, the Humane Project gives this great big dinner for all the scientists and sages in the world. They're tossing around theories about the ultimate mystery. Why are women infertile? Why can't we make babies anymore? Some of them say it's genetic experiments, gamma rays, pollution, same old, same old. Anyway, in the corner, this Englishman's sitting. He hasn't said a word. He's just tucking into his dinner. So they decide to ask him. They say, well, why do you think we can't make babies anymore? And he looks up at them. He's chewing on this great big wing. And he says, I haven't the faintest idea, he said. But this stalk is quite tasty, isn't it? Bye. <laughs>